Welcome to the Redeemer Church Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are blessed as you join us in walking through the Word of God together. To learn more about our ministry in St. Albans, Vermont, please visit RedeemerChurchBT.com. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give, give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. How are y'all doing? Hey, that's good. Some wonderful, some good. The others, me. I'm okay. Am I a little loud? Am I loud to you guys? Ah, can you hear me? Okay. All right, cool. All right. Well, again, good morning. I am so thankful to be uh, with you all this morning. Um, Somebody's excited to be here. Man, praise God for that. Um, we've, uh, we've, got, uh, we've got a few people out because of illness, so just Keep them in your prayers, and, uh, and if you think of it, reach out to them. Uh, let them know that you're praying for them and thinking of them. But uh, as you all know, uh, by now especially, uh, we have entered into the season of Advent. And this is the season where we get to spend just a, a little extra time looking at and studying and celebrating the coming of Jesus to the earth in the special and extraordinary moment called the Incarnation. Now... Don't get me wrong, because Christmas is not the only time that we're allowed to celebrate the Incarnation, nor should it be, right? This is something that we should celebrate year-round. And I think one of the tragic consequences of of having this this Christmas season, as as wonderful as it is, is that the, the, the treasure trove of rich and worshipful songs that center around the birth of Jesus are kind of just now relegated to this time of year. I mean, just think about the, the beauty of some of the songs that we've already sung. We should, we should enter or put some of those in all throughout the year, as weird as that would be. I think it would be a good idea. That's just me, though. Paul, will talk. All right? Okay. But nevertheless, this is a, a wonderful time where we really do get to step back and just marvel at the incredible moment in history where God gave us the answer to all of the world's problems. 
He gave us the answer to overcoming death. And he gave us the answer to our own problem with sin and our inability to, to reach God on our own. And this is an incredible time of year where we stop and remember the thrill of hope found in the coming of Jesus Christ. And we've got a lot of ground to cover this morning. It's going to be a little bit of a, a longer sermon, so let's go ahead and, and dive in so we can try to get to the end before Pastor Paul falls asleep. So uh, i got to put that joke in there. It's been a while. It's been a while. But now, as always, yeah, it's got coffee. But now, as always, please pray with me before we dive in. Heavenly Father, Lord, what a joy and a privilege it is to be here this morning uh, with, uh, with all of these wonderful people. Uh, Lord, I pray, God, that, uh, Lord, that you help us stay focused and attentive to, uh, Lord, not, not, not me, Lord, but, but what you are saying this morning, what your word has to say. Uh, Lord, as we pray all the time, there are so many things that want to pull our minds and hearts away from this moment right here. Lord, there, this is the holiday season. Lord, this is the Christmas season. There are so many plans that are just riling around in our head. But God, I pray, Lord, that through your Holy Spirit, we're able to just put those things aside for this morning and focus in on what actually matters. And that's your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. And so I pray that you help us remember that this morning and help keep our hearts attentive. And I pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right, now as you saw, we are taking this month away from the book of Hebrews and looking at the account of Jesus' birth that is recorded for us in the Gospel of Luke. Now, this, this book is actually a very fascinating look at the life of Jesus. It was written, of course, by this man named Luke. And Luke was not an eyewitness to the events that he wrote of in the gospel. He wasn't among the disciples of Jesus. Rather, he was actually a, a, an intelligent man, most likely a physician, who probably heard the gospel from the Apostle Paul. And he came to faith, and as we see in places such as Acts 16, he even traveled with Paul on some of his missionary journeys. Now, the way that Luke put together his gospel is also pretty remarkable. Now, he was a, again, highly intelligent man, like I've already mentioned, and he actually put together this account like how an investigative journalist would. And he tracked down eyewitnesses, he even found the disciples and sat down and, and interviewed them and took all of their detailed stories and compiled them together in this book that we have before us. But... Luke had a very specific purpose in putting together this gospel. And he wasn't simply doing this to, to prove to himself that, that everything he had come to put his faith in was true, although it probably helped with that. But verses 3 and 4 of Luke 1 tells us why he went through all of this effort. So if you have your Bibles with you, open them up to Luke chapter 1. It's the third book of the New Testament. Luke chapter 1. And take a look at verses 3 and 4. It says, It seemed good to me, and this is Luke talking, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, meaning all the, all the things that he has heard about and seen about Jesus, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. 
And so he puts this whole book together along with the book of Acts for this man named Theophilus. And most likely he was a a high-ranking Roman official and he wrote it because he wanted to show Theophilus that Christianity is not a blind faith. Christianity is not a blind faith. He wanted to show Theophilus, I'm putting that in there a lot because it's just a fun name to say, but he wanted to show him that when you place your faith in Jesus, you are not being asked to put aside all of your, all of your reason and all of your rationality. No, Luke wanted to make it clear that when you put your faith in Jesus, you are putting your faith in something that truly happened in time and space. Now, Jesus isn't just a myth. The incarnation, the cross, and the resurrection aren't simply stories that were made up in order to just inspire people to live a a better and more moral life. Luke wanted Theophilus to know that the truth of Christianity is a truth that you can be certain about because it is rooted in real historical events. It is rooted in reality. And this is yet another thing that separates Christianity from all other religions. And whether it be Mormonism or or Islam or Buddhism or or, or whatever else, Christianity alone stands above the rest in historical evidences proclaiming its truthfulness. So Luke wants Theophilus to not be afraid. And listen closely to this. Luke wants Theophilus to not be afraid to look into the details of his newfound faith. But he wanted him to have confidence that the more he dug into it, the more certainty that he would have that reality would bear out the truthfulness of his faith, of Christianity, of Christ. And friends, what a, what a comfort that is for us, Right? What a comfort that is. I think, I think we are so often afraid to ask questions or, or to dig deep into our faith out of fear of what we may find or what we may not find. But Luke says the opposite. Luke says the opposite. Truth, reality, and rationality are not enemies of our faith, but they actually flow from the source of our faith. They flow from Christ Jesus. So friends, we don't... We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid to ask questions. And I know that that sentiment isn't found in a lot of churches, but we don't have to be afraid to ask questions because there are answers. And that's the, that's the thrill of our hope, right? It's the thrill of our hope. We don't, we don't have a hope like that of a child hoping for a present, but they don't really know if they're going to receive it. Our hope is a sure hope. It's a sure hope based on a knowledge of a treasure that if you put your faith in Christ, you will receive. It is a hope grounded in historical reality, not in wishful thinking. And this is why Luke and Theophilus and you and I, if you've put your trust in Jesus, shout a big amen when Paul said in Romans 5, verses 1 through 5, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified, made right before God by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in it. 
Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not, what? How does that verse end? Disappoint. It doesn't put us to shame. Our hope doesn't put us to shame. And friends, that can only be true if our hope is based in reality. A hope that's not based in reality is a hope that will put you to shame. Now, with all that in mind, Luke then decides to start from the very beginning. And not, not even with the birth of Jesus, but with the announcement of the conception of Jesus. So I want you to take a look at Luke 1, verses 26 through 28 to begin. Luke 1, verses 26 through 28. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Now, there really wasn't a more unlikely person for Gabriel to go to in all of Israel than Mary. And she was, she was among the lowly. And she was also very young, possibly as young as, as 12 or 13 years old. And like many people in Israel, she was a poor, uneducated peasant living in a small country town far from the center of power, far from Jerusalem. And Kent Hughes, a biblical scholar, calls her a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. And that is really who Mary was. And this is pretty amazing, I think. Because we, we, we know the story, right? Even if you're not a believer, the this, this story is, is pretty well known. We know that the angel Gabriel is there. We know that Mary is about to be told that she would be the earthly mother of Jesus. That's why, that's why Gabriel's there. And Martin Luther makes a good point when he said that essentially, if it were up to mankind, we, we would have sent the angel Gabriel to so many other people before we would have sent him to Mary, right? Luther said that God could have sent him to Jerusalem, to the daughter of a, of a high priest named Caiaphas, this really wealthy man. And she was known actually to be pretty beautiful. And of course, she was known to be rich. She had gold jewelry. She had nice hair, all of the, all the nice things. And she even had maids to attend to her. And so to human eyes, that seems like a much better option for the mother of Jesus than this lowly peasant girl from a town where, where everyone thought nothing good could come out of. And yet Mary was given the greatest honor that any woman, and I would argue any human being, period, in history has ever been given. And in fact, her lowliness was actually precisely why God sent Gabriel to her. In choosing Mary, God was beginning to show the kind of humility and humiliation His Son would have to endure for the salvation of sinners. Because we have to remember, Jesus did not come in this first advent, in this first coming, to be put on an earthly throne. And He didn't come to have a, a comfortable and nice lifestyle, but rather the plan of Jesus, the plan for Jesus, was first to humble Himself and to subject Himself to humiliation and misery in order to save us from our sins. And this is precisely why He didn't choose someone like Caiaphas' daughter. That's why 
Gabriel didn't visit her. Because as one commentator said, what better way to show what he had come to do than for him to be born from a woman like Mary, from a small town like Nazareth. But not only that, but in choosing Mary, this this humble and lowly woman, God is also showing us who he came to save. Right? Alex reminded me of a verse during men's group. So thank you, Alex, wherever you are. Thanks, man. He reminded me of a verse in Mark chapter 2 where Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and says, Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so Jesus came to save the lowly. He came to save the lowly, the broken, the repentant. I said that really strangely, repentant. He came to save the outcasts. He came to save those who feel hopeless. And He came to save the poor like Mary just as much as He came to save the rich like Theophilus. The humble origins of Jesus' birth, including who His mother was, points us to His salvation being for all who trust in His name and repent of their sin. And God's grace is for the lowly. And not for just the lowly in in the sense of of societal standing, but for the lowly of heart. Those who recognize their need for a Savior. Those are the people who God came to save. And God was, was certainly showing His grace to Mary. Look again at Gabriel's greeting to her in verse 28. He says, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Essentially what Gabriel is saying to Mary was that the Lord is showing his grace and favor to her. That the Lord is with her uh, and wants to bless her with something spectacular. Now it's important to note right here. I'm going to kind of take a quick aside because I think this is important. Especially in the context that we live in in uh, in Vermont and in in St. Albans and in this area. But it's important to note right here that when the angel used the word favor, it comes from the Greek word related to grace. So it essentially means grace. It means to be treated with undeserved kindness. A kindness that you cannot earn. A kindness that doesn't belong to you by right. It is something that can only be gifted or granted to you because you don't deserve it. This is the kind of favor that Gabriel is saying that the Lord is showing her, that that the Lord is bestowing upon her. And now this is really important because this greeting by the angel Gabriel has been very much misunderstood. Very much misunderstood. Especially amongst those in the Roman Catholic Church. And I don't want you to misunderstand. Roman Catholic teaching says that Angel Gabriel here is not just relaying a message from God to Mary, but in this greeting, Gabriel is actually worshiping Mary. But friends, nothing can be further from the truth. This angel is not worshiping her. Nor does he say that Mary is full of grace, which is how some Roman Catholics believe this verse is to be interpreted. These ideas come from a prayer commonly used by Roman Catholics, and you you may have heard it yourselves when it goes, Hail Mary, full of grace, right? 
The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus, Holy Mary, Mother of God. Pray for us sinners now and at the hour of death. Friends, this is not a biblical prayer. It is not a biblical prayer. And the implications of it are not found in Scripture anywhere. Anywhere. The problem with Roman Catholic teaching when it comes to Mary is that it treats her as a source of grace rather than an object of grace. And so many Catholics will pray to Mary because they think that she has grace to give. That she is, as they call her, the dispenser of grace. Not only that, but in 1950 they began to teach that Mary didn't actually die but was, but was assumed or, or taken up into heaven. And in 1954, they began to teach that uh, once Mary reached heaven, she was then crowned the queen of heaven, meaning that God chose her to be the mother of Christ because he willed her to have a unique and exceptional role in salvation as the second Eve, just as Christ was the second Adam. And furthermore, in 1854, the church began to teach the Immaculate Conception of Mary. Now, often when we hear of the Immaculate Conception of Mary, we, we sometimes mistakenly think that it's talking about the virgin birth, right? That's what I used to think. But that's not the case at all. The Immaculate Conception refers to the Catholic teaching that Mary was born without sin. And not only was she born without sin, but that she remained sinless for the rest of her life. And in the most recent Catholic Church catechisms, Penned in 1994, Mary is referred to as the mother of the Christian church, the queen of heaven, the exemplar of true Christianity, and as the mediatrix of the church between the church and God. And friends, I have a lot of Roman Catholic friends whom I love dearly, but this flies in the face of biblical teaching. This flies in the face of true Christianity of our one and only mediator between us and God is God Himself, the Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All of this and more is the current Roman Catholic dogma, which means to reject this teaching is to be out of the grace of God, means to be out of the church, and it means to be without salvation. So if you were a Roman Catholic who rejected this, you would be excommunicated. Now, not all Roman Catholic churches will necessarily teach this, and not all Roman Catholic churches will excommunicate you, but if you look at what comes out of Rome, what the actual teaching is, this is where it is. This is where it is. And this false teaching, which stems from a misunderstanding of the passage that we just looked at right now, has led an untold number of people to worship Mary. They'll say they don't worship her, but if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, and to pray to her to gain access to God. One of the prayers that is actually found within the Roman Catholic Church is this. Hail Mary, my queen, my mother. I give you all myself and to show my devotion to you. I consecrate to you my eyes, my ears, my mouth, my heart, my entire self. Wherefore, O loving mother, as I am your own, keep me, defend me as your property and possession. 
Another begins by saying, O Mother of God, Immaculate Mary, to you do I dedicate my body and soul, all my prayers and deeds, my joys and sufferings, all that I am, all that I have. With a joyful heart, I surrender myself to whose love? Jesus' love? God the Father's love? The Holy Spirit's love? No, it's your love, Mary's love. Friends, do not doubt for a moment that Mary, if she was not utterly caught up in enjoying the bliss of heaven, would be appalled to think that anyone would view her as anything more than a sinner saved by grace who had the blessing and the honor to be the human mother of Jesus, her Lord and Savior. It's important to know this. It's important to know this. Biblical scholar Philip Ryken puts it so well when he says, the way Mary helps us is not by giving us her grace, but by showing that God can give us the same kind of grace that he gave her. Mary is the blessed virgin who alone was called to give birth to the Son of God. Her experience is not our experience. Nevertheless, her example is for us. Since she received grace from God, her example proves that God shows unmerited favor to lowly sinners. Even when we feel small and insignificant, overlooked by the world, we can know that God is for us. Gabriel's greeting to Mary shows God's grace for the lowly. Now, as Gabriel gave this greeting to Mary, as you can imagine, she was probably just a, a bit concerned, and she, and she was a bit concerned. This greeting from him was meant to actually probably calm her nerves, but it kind of had the, the opposite effect of that. In fact, in verse 29, we are told that she is greatly troubled and she tries to figure out what this greeting from Gabriel actually meant. And she was probably overwhelmed by this encounter with an angel. But, but thankfully, Gabriel didn't leave her long in that state and said to her in verses 30 through 33, Do not be afraid, Mary. You probably realized they kind of freaked her out a little bit. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor. Again, the word meaning is grace. The word there is grace with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Now it's not an uncommon thought that as soon as the Old Testament came to an end, that the New Testament just immediately kind of began, right? As soon as the last book of Malachi was finished, and then just boom, Jesus was born. But, as Paul mentioned earlier, thanks for stealing my thunder, by the way, between the Old and the New Testaments, there was actually a span of 400 years where, again, as Paul said, it seemed as if God was silent. There's over 400 years where there were no new prophecies, there were no new prophets, there was, there was really no nothing. Nothing was happening. And at this time, it was at this time, when the Israelites were, were also spread all over the map. They were, they were kind of spread out. They weren't all just in Israel. They weren't all just in, in Jerusalem or Nazareth or any of the outlying towns. But they, <clears throat> over the course of their history, they had been exiled to Babylon, and then under the subjugation from foreign powers such as Persia and Greece and Egypt and Syria, and then eventually Rome. 
And some Jews returned to Israel after all this scattering about. Some finally kind of made their way back, but many also stayed in those different foreign lands. But despite all of this, there was still, again, as Paul mentioned, a deep desire or a deep sense within themselves of an expectation, of expectation, an expectation that God would fulfill all of those promises that He had made to them throughout the Old Testament. Promises that a a Messiah would come, a descendant of King David would would come storming onto the scene and and rescue them from their bondage and, and from their chains of oppression. And so Gabriel was telling Mary right then and there that she was going to carry and give birth to the one who carries the hope of the world on his shoulders. Now let's look quickly at how Gabriel describes the baby that would be born from Mary in these verses. We're going to look at them quickly because each one could be really its own sermon. First, Gabriel said that his name will be Jesus. The meaning of that name is God saves or the Lord is salvation or or Yahweh saves. Now this name is important. Because remember, Jesus is being born into a culture where the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these these religious elites, had a stranglehold on the religious life. They had gotten the masses convinced that it's it's not really God who saves, but that they could actually save themselves through a legalistic keeping of the law. And so the name Jesus, the name God saves, was extremely important here. Because just by saying His name, the people during this time, and and not only during that time, but but even now, are actually forced to say that mankind in any way cannot save themselves. That's what, when you say the name Jesus, you're admitting to your inability to save yourself. We need God to save us. And that was the very reason Jesus came down to begin with. And that is what Jesus' name means. In the name Jesus, we not only see that Jesus is God, but we also are told His mission. How amazing is that? That's incredible. Next, the angel doesn't give another name or title for Jesus, but more of a description. And he says that Jesus will be great. That He'll be great. Now often when we read descriptions of Jesus or God, they can kind of seem like an understatement. Like in Deuteronomy 10, saying that the Lord is is awesome. Right? I feel like the, the words great and awesome have kind of left, uh, lost their, their power and impact in our culture because everything's great, everything's awesome for us. And so when we see Gabriel saying that Jesus will be great, it can, it can kind of seem like he's just kind of underselling him just a little bit. But we have to remember that when we see descriptions of Jesus like this, what is meant is the very core of what that word means, of what that descriptor means. So in other words, Jesus is the fullness of what it means to be great. He is the epitome of greatness. But what is so incredible is that the greatness of Jesus on earth wasn't measured by status or wasn't measured by by conquest or by any other measure used when, when we most often think of greatness. God defines greatness not by statue or status, but he defines greatness by service. By service. So the greatness of Jesus was displayed in his suffering poverty, loneliness, 
homelessness, rejection, persecution, and torture. He did all of this in perfect servitude to God and in servitude of those He came to save. This is the kind of greatness that, what Jesus, uh, that Jesus was getting at when He told His disciples in Luke 22 that He who is least among you all is the one who is greatest. Jesus was great because of His deity, yes, that's true but also because by His sacrifice on the cross, He became a servant to all those who come to Him in faith. That was the greatness of Jesus. That is the greatness of Jesus. Gabriel then calls Him in verse 32, the Son of the Most High, which is very similar to the Son of God, which He calls Him in verse 35. Now, this title, the Son of the Most High, or the Son of God, is actually used in several passages all throughout Scripture with different meanings kind of attached to it. As commentator Riken again rightly points out, he says, there is a sense in which every believer is a son or daughter of the Most High. But this title belongs to Jesus in a unique way. Divine sonship is His eternal identity as the second person of the Trinity, God the Eternal Son. There is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What Luke gradually reveals in his gospel, in Jesus' conception in chapter 1, at his baptism in chapter 3, at his transfiguration in chapter 9, and at his resurrection in Acts 13, is that Jesus of Nazareth is God the Son. Is God the Son. Jesus shares a unique relationship with God the Father that no one else in creation does. Jesus in John 10.30 says that I and the Father of one, and the Greek phrasing of this means that Jesus was saying that He and God the Father share the same essence, share the same divine nature and power. And so while He was and is truly human, He also was and is truly God and uniquely, uniquely the Son of God the Father. Now, Gabriel also said that Jesus would rule in majesty, sitting on the throne of his father, David. So as Luke has already indicated in verse 27, his earthly father, his adoptive father, really, Joseph, came from the house of David, which meant that Jesus was David's descendant. And as I mentioned before, God had promised David that his heir would be or would have a kingdom that would never end. This is the promise that you see in 2 Samuel 7, 13 through 14, in verse 16, which says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Your throne shall be established. And so Gabriel was telling Mary that these ancient promises, these, these promises that, that all of Israel has put their hope in, was going to be fulfilled in this child, Jesus, who is the son of David and the people of God's eternal king. Can you imagine getting that news? And so there's a lot packed in there. But in summary, this was, this was Gabriel's announcement to Mary. That she would give birth to a son. That she would name him Jesus because he himself is the God who has come to save. And he would be a great Savior and the unique Son of God, the King of kings, who would establish a kingdom without end. That's what Gabriel is telling Mary. 
Now, I'm sure this was a lot for her to take in. But I believe her response is it's actually absolutely amazing. I may be speaking for myself, but I believe if an angel were to come to me, if I were a woman, that is, and tell me all of this, I would, I would probably just you know, kind of say, okay, right, sure. Or I would simply think I was having like a hallucination or something more along those lines. But, but look at how Mary responds in verse 34. All she says was, how will this be since I am a virgin? How? How is this going to happen? Now, I, I don't think that this was a, a response born from unbelief. Now, the reason I think that is because if you kind of go up to the passage before this one, you'll find Gabriel making another pregnancy announcement. He was pretty busy this day. But he was making a, a, another pregnancy announcement to a priest by the name of Zechariah, who would eventually be Jesus' uncle. Now, Zechariah was old, and his wife was also old and barren and, and well past the childbearing age. And Zechariah's response to Gabriel when he said, you're going to have a baby, was, how shall I know this? How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Now, the, the phrase, how shall I know this, could also be translated, how am I to know that what you are saying is true? How am I to know what you're saying is true? Essentially, I don't, I don't really believe you. This is a response of disbelief. And the response of Gabriel shows that to be the case. He, he chastises Zechariah for his unbelief and gives him a slight punishment, uh, not allowing him to speak until his son John was born. Essentially because he didn't believe that the word of God was true. He didn't believe it. But Mary's response was different. Her response could be translated like this. Her response could be, okay, I believe you. Right? I, I trust that everything you said is true, but I'm still a virgin. So what's, what's the plan? How, how is this going to work? And so I hope you see the, the difference there. There's, there's a difference there. One is the response of, that is impossible, God. And the other response is, I believe you, God, show me how. Those are very different responses. Now Mary obviously understood the angel to say that her child would be conceived before she got married. Now, as you may know, she was engaged to Joseph. And in those days, a betrothal was formalized in a public ceremony and generally lasted for about a year, during which the bride was sometimes still referred to as the man's wife. But the couple did not live together and they did not have sexual relations, for as a, another commentator put it, in those days, an engagement was regarded as a definite promise of mutual fidelity, and its violation was looked upon as adultery. But then in verse 35 through 37, the angel gives her the answer to this. He says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. So everything that Gabriel says can really be summed up in verse 37, right? He could have just said, for nothing will be impossible with God, and just kind of you know, left it at that. And we modern human beings in the West often have a problem with you know, that kind of phraseology, or we, we often have a problem with, with miracles. 
We, we simply think that, that nothing can violate the laws of nature. But friends, that is only true if the God who wrote those laws didn't exist. In a world with no God, the laws of nature can't be overcome. But the reality is, for the creator of the world, for the, for the author of its laws, he alone has the right and the power to do whatever he sees fit with it, including the empty womb of Mary. And with the words that actually that hearken back to the creation of Genesis 1, when the Spirit of God hovered over the waters, ready to bring life to the void, the Holy Spirit would rest over Mary. And with His creative power, bring about life. And the child that would be miraculously conceived would be called holy. Now friends, last week we looked at the fullness of what that term holy actually means. The baby in Mary's womb was going to be morally perfect. Morally perfect. The only human baby ever conceived without the corruption of sin. But he at the same time would also be transcendent. He would be higher and grander than any other human because as Scripture testifies, He was also truly God. That's the fullness of what that word holy means. Now we, we as believers, we're called to be holy and there's a sense in which we are holy, but not to the fullness of what that term means. Because all, a God alone is holy, holy, holy. And so this baby was going to be holy, holy, holy. Now that can be easy to miss the magnitude of this moment, right? As you're, as you're reading through the, the Gospel of Luke, as we're, as we're sitting here in this time of Christmas, it can be easy to miss the magnitude of all of this. By showing this favor to Mary, by, by showing her the grace and honor of having the holy person of Jesus dwell in her in this miraculous pregnancy, friends, we are given a glimpse. We are just given a, a preview at the grace He came to make available to us. Mary was chosen due to no merit of her own to be shown immense grace. Friends, who does that sound like? That sounds like us, right? We were chosen due to no merit of our own to be shown immense grace by God. An angel, gleefully and with, with joy, told Mary that the Christ would be placed in her womb, would be, would be in her. And then Luke 15.10 says that there is rejoicing in the presence of angels over one sinner who repents. Mary had Jesus live and grow in her womb. But, but friends, if you're a believer in Christ, then you have, you have Him dwelling in your heart. Isn't that amazing? That's what this picture is meant to show us. It's, it's the gospel in this small little microcosm of a story that means everything. And friends, I, I hope that excites you. This is a season for joy, right? I hope this excites you, believers, as you read this, knowing what it means for you. What this angel is announcing is nothing less than the very hope for our souls. It is only in the incarnation of Jesus could our eternal destinies go from, from bleak and hell-bound to bright and glorious. That is the thrill of hope we are celebrating right now. 
Take away all of the, the trees and gifts and lights. Take away all of our comfort. And take away worries and thoughts of money or possessions. And man, friends, just leave me with Jesus. Leave me with Jesus and I will find more joy and wholeness this Christmas than any commercialized version of it that this culture can offer me. Why? Because through His miraculous birth, and through His perfect life, through His sacrificial death, through His glorious resurrection, I have peace with the King of David. I have peace with God Himself. And I have citizenship in His kingdom. And not only that, friends, but I have the love of my Savior forever. Forever. Man, that's what this season means. That's what Christmas means. And so, friends, don't lose the magnitude of this moment. And I encourage you to, to, Lord, to ask the Lord to search your heart. And so, friends, is your heart anxious because of this Christmas season? Do you feel anxiety when you think of Christmas and you think of everything going on? Are you stressing over plans and gifts and all of the rest? Brothers and sisters, if you do feel that way, then you are in danger of missing this. You're in danger of missing all of this. Your anxiety is stemming from a heart that is bound by, by control or pleasing others or chasing the perfect picture of what you believe this holiday should look like for you and your family. You are in danger of losing sight of the hope that you have in, in Christ Jesus. Of the complete trust that you can have in Him. The complete trust that, that grants you peace and rest while the rest of the world is, is running itself ragged. Don't lose sight of Jesus, friends. Remember what that song, O Holy Night, actually says. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared, and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Friends, this song is about us. We were laying in our sin and error we were destined for hell. We were pining for some sort, of, some sort of hope, and we were looking for it in a thousand different places. But then He appeared. But then He appeared. He is the thrill of hope. And our weary souls can now rejoice because we have a new and glorious morning fast approaching us. For the Christian, there is a morning coming to us where we will wake up and see the same face that Mary got to see, but shining with even more glory than she even got to saw, see. We will wake up and we will see the face of Jesus on that bright and glorious morning. What a thrilling hope that is. So friends, this, this Christmas season, do you, do you feel that thrill? Not, not the thrill of, of what might be under a, a tree on Christmas morning. Not the thrill of, of being able to see your friends and family on Christmas morning. All of that. Move to the side. Do you feel the thrill of Jesus and what that means for you? Is that the thrill? Do you have that hope? Man, if you don't, we would love to talk to you about how you can have it. 
And as we get near the end of this sermon, take a look at the final response of Mary to all of this incredible and heavy news that she got from Gabriel. In verse 38, it says, And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Friends, though she was not sinless, man, what a great hero of the faith Mary was. What a great hero she was. To this incredible call, Mary did not raise any objections or, or try to find some way out of it. She simply trusted God. How rare is it to find someone who is willing to trust God for the impossible and then obey Him without any hesitation or qualification? Friends, can you, can you say that for, for yourself? Can you, can you say that for your life? Can you say that not just for your life, but your family's life? Friends, in Mary, we see the quintessential Christian call. And to be a Christian is to become a servant of Christ. And not a, a begrudging slave moaning as we do the work that he has set before us, but a joyful servant who delights in doing the will of him who has called us. A joyful servant. Friends, though this call to Mary was a great honor and blessing, I do not believe that she was ignorant of the suffering that it would, would and, or could and would bring her way. I mean, think about it. As she was sitting there, as this 13, 14-year-old girl, being told all of this, that she was going to conceive this child in this miraculous way, the virgin birth. Can you imagine all the fear that could have welled up into her heart, that probably did well up into her heart? To accept the virgin birth, Mary had to be willing to give up almost everything that she knew and loved. She had to be willing to give up Joseph, the man that she was engaged to marry. I mean, in her mind, what are the chances that this, that this man is going to actually believe me, that I got visited by an angel, and that, that the Holy Spirit would, would come over me, and that I would bear this child? Can you imagine that, men in the room? If you're betrothed, if the person that you were engaged to said that to you? Man. <laughs> Amen. You're getting a little ahead of us, okay? But at this moment, she didn't know if he would believe her or not. She didn't know that Gabriel would soon you know, go and talk to him. She had to be willing to give up her reputation in her village and the possible rumors that would arise. How much do we love our reputations? She would also experience, she didn't know this yet, but she would also experience the well, she knew this part, the trials of childbirth, but she didn't know that she would experience the exile to Egypt, having to watch her son become hated, arrested, put on trial, and then crucified and buried before her very eyes. She didn't know those things. And though she didn't know of many of the trials, she did know that this calling would be costly, extremely costly. And friends, that's the call of the Christian life. Like Mary, you will experience a blessing unlike any other. You'll experience the salvation of your souls. You'll experience a relationship with God Himself. But friends, in this life, the Christian life is costly. Sometimes we like to think it's, it's otherwise. 
you'll have some false teachers try to tell you that it's going to be smooth sailing and that the Lord's will for your life here and now is to, is to just simply experience this, this worldly increase in, in the amount of things that you have or the money that you possess. All of these different kinds of things. But friends, nothing could be further from the truth. Our treasure is much greater than those things. And often we have to lose those things in order to gain what actually is truly real. But Mary was able to do all this through faith, right? She trusted God for it all. She trusted God with her relationship with Joseph. She trusted God with her reputation in her town. She trusted God with her physical suffering and the anguish of her soul. Mary believed in God and followed Him with trusting obedience. So friends, that, that's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ and have, have Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord and as your King. So friends, I want you to ask yourself, is this, if you're a believer, is this, is this representative of, of your faith? Of your faith. And so this Christmas season, again, let us remember that and follow this example that Mary has left for us. And also remember that Christ is worth it all. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you. God, that even though we could not save ourselves, Lord, even though we were laying in our sin and in our error, you did not leave us there. Even though you are holy, even though you would have been just to give us what we rightly deserve, to give us, to give us the punishment for our sins, Lord, you sent your Son, Jesus Christ. And you didn't send him to a wealthy family, you didn't send him to be born in a bed that has pillows and all of these, these comfortable things around him to have him live a, a comfortable and nice life. But Lord, you sent him to be our suffering servant. To live the perfect life that we could not live. To take our sins upon himself. Die on the cross and gift us the greatest Christmas gift that we could ever receive, which is his righteousness. Lord, we thank you so much for that. And God, we thank you, Lord, that God, we don't get into heaven, Lord. We don't, we don't get the amazing blessings of, of your grace and mercy by, by the things that we do, by being a good person. But Lord, we, we receive those things just by faith. Just faith. God, you are so good. We thank you for your son. We pray this in his name. Amen.